Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first edition of the Third Fridays podcast in the year 2023. My name is Christian Cisan, and today my uh, guest is the newly minted case manager, uh, Steve McClendon. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, last year when I started the podcast episode for January of 2022, it was a solo job and it had this very NPR feel that like a, a friend of mine actually listened to it. It was like, it was really serious and very direct as to what your uh, out- outreach or your, your, your thoughts were for the new year. And so I thought, you know what, maybe let's just like, let's just spice it up and, and get, you know, more, uh, more people on, on the show to talk about, you know, what we think about what's going on in the new year. Are you a resolutions guy? Not really. I always find it's hard to come up with uh, kind of uh, something measurable yeah. in terms of re- resolutions. People say they want to eat healthier and it's like, well, what are you doing <laughs> that? So, uh, right. That's a good point. It's like, there's no, there's no decision point at the end of the year as to whether or not you have eaten healthier. I guess it's like a feel thing and may- allows people to break it. Right. This is true too. Yeah. Which kind of is a good segue into what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, the governor's decision to veto uh, an important bill that would amend the workers' compensation law in defining temporary total disability. So we're very excited about it, but just for anyone that doesn't know what it is, Steve, could you kind of put it in uh, layman's terms as to what this bill proposed to do? Sure. So the bill as it had been proposed and passed by the the assembly and the legislature was going to amend the definition of temporary total disability for the purpose of awards such that someone might not have a medical total disability but if the employer was unable to accommodate them or they were unable to return to the pre-injury job uh, e- either or then there would be uh, uh, awards running at a temporary total disability rate so kind of divorcing uh, further the, the medical definition of disability from how much they could be compensated. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good, that's a good little insert at the end, uh, you know, talking about the medical definition of disability. So are you referring to what like older guidelines have defined total disability to be when you say that? Yeah. So I think most of our clients or a lot of people in this industry will be familiar with right form C 4.2 and treating doctors are often going to list someone as having 100 percent disability. Um, My understanding of the the 1996 guidelines is that was defined as someone kind of uh, bedridden, for lack of a better term, um, you know, unable to really partake in any activity. It's kind of been redefined over the history of time. Um, it isn't really a definition that we often go back to look at, but it's something to keep in mind, right? That when we're saying someone is uh, has an ongoing disability, that they're unable to perform any work, that's where it is medically, and this would have redefined that otherwise. Yeah, and and thinking about uh, you know what we do 
as part of our litigation strategy for degree of disability or further causally related disability, sometimes we get to the point where there's a difference in opinion between parties' doctors as to total disability from someone's job or total disability from all jobs, right? We sometimes have to develop that through effective cross-examination or even questions of the claimant as to what he or she uh, believes he can, he or she can do as far as activities of daily living, certain things like that. And then juxtaposing that with the 96 guidelines as to, you know, whether or not you're bedridden, do you have any bladder or bowel incontinence, like you're, you're basically at the point of being unable to do anything. And this bill would essentially say, you can do some stuff, but be totally disabled. Right. So what, uh, aside from the monetary problem that that would cause our clients from an increased compensation rate, how else would that affect them if this bill were passed or signed into law? Right. I suppose in effect, it would make it so just about any disability that was written down on the paper, if if this employer was in a certain line of business where they couldn't offer to bring someone back, you could be looking at a much more extended period of months or years where they're getting compensated at a temporary total rate. That's yeah, that's a good point. So we work at different in different sides of the house, right at Lois, right? So um, I, I recently attended the New York Self-Insured Association's annual meeting where uh, you know large-scale employers are talking about how this affects them, and it's a, you know obviously it's a it's a nice little home run trot around the bases uh, when when this happens a few weeks before the annual meeting because it would affect our ability to tender uh, light-duty jobs or even if um, it or or actually affect our ability to have a light duty program because if the light duty program doesn't match what the restrictions are, we would be forced to either offer a full duty job and hope that he comes back and risk re-injury in the workplace or pay at a compensation rate, like you said, which is irrespective of what the disability rating is within those documents. Now you on your on your side of the house, you work with insured risk, right? So there you have a lot of clients, Steve, that have uh, you know smaller subsets of employee populations, right? And do you find that your clients in that space even have the ability to offer light duty positions to the to the claimants? Quite often they don't. I deal with a lot of uh, home health aides and nursing assistants, that sort of industry. And uh, right, unless they happen to have an opening for someone who is more of a companion who wasn't necessarily doing any lifting, carrying, shopping, cooking, right? If, if, if it's, someone is needed to do that and there's no openings for someone who doesn't, then right, they may not be able to bring them back in any kind of light duty work. Right. Right. And typically goes, right? The smaller the employer is, the less likely they are to have a light duty program to, to, to be able to have a, um, a situation where they can tender something to bring them back to the workforce, because that's really how the system is designed to work. Maybe you're not as disabled, maybe you're not as healthy or fit when the as when you were before the accident. But if you can work in some capacity, it helps you long term to return to the workforce, right? Right, of course. So let's dive into this, um, the text of this veto. Now, how do you think when you're reading it, it's, it's going for us? I found it to be interesting. There's quite a <laughs> lot of substance here in the text of, of the veto. 
and discusses some of the policy. As you had said, we had talked a little before how much it would affect the state as an employer of municipalities. And I brought up the state is also in the insurance business, right, is is the market of last resort and operates. Um, I believe it's an economic development corporation of sort that's historically been self-sustaining and would potentially impact the budget in that regard if the state's costs for for you know indemnity payments to so many workers were impacted. So I think that this is uh, exciting or optimistic, something that our clients should see in the, the as far as policy, right? Certainly a veto could just have one sentence. So I don't necessarily know that this is going to come back in a rephrased a bill and passed again and something that might be considered. So I, I like the language here. I, I don't know if you want to say more about how you feel about yeah. the text of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the thing I, that jumped out at me first was that it, this bill substitutes a legal standard, right? Because if I, if I look at that phrasing, isn't a bill supposed to do that, right? A bill is supposed to substitute a legal standard because the legislature has that role, right? If they want to create new law, they're replacing what the legal standard is. So it does make me think when I first read it that do we have real support for denying the future iteration? Right. Right. Like the the legal standard could be changed for for the speed limit. Like you said, it could be any sort of thing. And then, you know, the, the rest of that sentence talks about a total disability rate of compensation in the place of medical evidence, which is what you brought up as like the, the, the redefinition or the relegation of a medical report to what, you know, what is that medical report even good for? Uh, treatment, right? Uh, the whole reason the claimants sometimes go to the doctor is to support their, their need for wage replacement as not for treatment all the time. And so if they're really taking medical reports out of the case, then does it really go towards a reduction in costs? So you brought up New York's place in the insurance world, right? Did it seem to you that the, the cost really played a role in the governor rejecting this bill? Yeah, and not necessarily from that regard, but I see there from from the perspective, right, that the state is, is a large is the public sector employer in the state. So I'm sure has, you know, plenty of public works employees and uh, that sort of thing has plenty of claims coming to them. So this would have increased the cost to the state with that regard. It said the cost of the bill would be 360 million annually for insured employers, 140 million for the state. So a total of half a billion dollars there. 140 million for private and municipal self-insured employers. And you're right, the state is part of that. You also mentioned, right, like this could come back next year. And then the the, the, the textual uh, language here says be more appropriate to consider during the state budget process next year. And so it's, it's like a win for us now. But she does provide some window of opportunity for this bill to be redrafted in a way that would probably still pass the Senate, the, the, the House in New York, and then be back on her desk, you know, in 10, 11 months. Do you think that that's a potential scenario that we're going to be dealing with soon? Yeah, it does seem like that. And right, the the breakdown of the Senate and the Assembly right now is um, about two thirds Democratic majority. 
for each. So there's, uh, I think if there was a, an extreme solidarity and a movement to uh, get this passed, the, it, it could happen. Historically, there's been a lot of fraction, factions, excuse me, in uh, the assembly. So it's certainly something they can bring up again. It certainly could be a horse trading type thing, right? This- oh, interesting. A little, little political <laughs> lesson. Horse trading, yeah. I guess, the, yeah, redrafting in a way that maybe doesn't uh, provide a uh, cost increase, perhaps. Is that possible? What what type of horse trading could we possibly see in the new year that would make this bill more passable? Any thoughts there? Because that, that's very interesting. I just suspected some kind of broader, might be some give and take with another labor or employment related issue. Um, and of course, like you said, the, the numbers would have to add up. Yeah. But I think it's it's also promising, right, that there's a desire for this for cost neutrality to it. And it, I think it inherently can't be cost neutral. It would have to be offset in some other way. Yeah. And now we can celebrate a little bit for the time being, mm-hmm. right, with this veto and get back to the successful litigation strategies that we have employed for so long. Uh, one of which resulted in a case that you had a, a great result uh, before the courts a couple months ago. Uh, so this this claim that you had, which makes you the perfect guest for this episode, involved someone who had tripped in a living space, injuring a right shoulder, and they raised uh, the head, neck, and back that involved certain uh, disability ratings. Is that is that a case that would have a similar application to what we're talking about today? Yeah, potentially. So if, if this bill had passed and this individual's employer was not able to accommodate them within the, the restrictions as they were written, then there would be no labor market issue to address. They would keep getting at 100% rate, even based, uh, you know, disregarding whatever the doctor wrote or whatever the judge determined to be in terms of credibility. So, so we wouldn't even be doing this or discussing this if we were in a world where this bill had passed, but we were able to litigate the issue of labor market attachment. This claimant uh, provided a, a really insufficient number of applications from my perspective. Uh, I think there were about 10 or 12 over the course of about five or six months from when you figure the point where we start raising the issue, where we go to the hearing, where he has time to produce it, where we come back and take the testimony. Uh, I think some of the applications had said that they were not necessarily remote work and he believed that he would be able to do them remote. So the law judge at the hearing, and this is going back to about May, found the claimant to be attached. And we said, no, that's just wrong. That does not meet the standards of American Axel. This is really insufficient. It's it's, it's hard to say, oh, well, it's a, an issue for a finder of fact. So we drafted the appeal, we submitted it, and the board agreed with us, overturned the finding of awards. So now this claimant, because he failed to apply to a sufficient number of jobs in a reasonable amount of time, is getting no awards. And again, this whole issue of labor market attachment would effectively be removed. The only attachment question would be, does the employer accommodate or not? Right. It, it, you wouldn't even get to that result. Right. It'd just be a factual determination where we would have to produce evidence that we can either provide accommodation or not. And that's not the basis of bringing the person back to the workforce. So that's going to keep them out. And I think that's what the governor talked about. It actually would reduce the state's workforce. 
Yeah, and that's <laughs> certainly something, right, that we've been seeing and and uh, just driving along the highway or Main Street or whatever, you see plenty of now hiring signs. You know that oh, there's, yeah. there's openings just about everywhere for, you know, all sorts of economic and demographic reasons. And, right, to have the Workers' Compensation Board be uh, sort of a system which encourages people to stay out of work more so if that were what had passed through this bill. Yeah, it, it could be, you know, in a way, uh, I don't want to say destabilizing to the economy, but certainly not productive towards New York State's economy. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a fascinating point. It could, it could um, have effects on the economy that we don't even know yet, right? Because we're talking about a decision point from a total disability rate, which is, in most cases, two-thirds of the claimant's average weekly wage, which is the the pre-accident earnings. And we have this situation where if they're getting benefits at the temporary total disability rate, it's only two-thirds of what you made, right? It's not taxable. And so claimants sometimes are faced with the decision, well, do I go back to work and make the most amount of money I can, or do I sit at home and get two-thirds of what I made tax-free? And many claimants, if they are you know, found to be totally disabled, they don't feel an obligation to return to the workforce because the numbers, the finances of what a compensation rate is doesn't give them that incentive. Do you agree? Disagree? Yeah, I agree. And right, there are certainly plenty of times where where all parties would agree. Maybe a claim is is two or three years in and kind of lingering and, you know, claimant wants to see or the doctor wants to see if the claimant could benefit from additional physical therapy or whatever the situation is. And that person may be uh, getting now a 25 or 50% rate. And that may go into their factors, you know, when they determine maybe I should be going back to work. And if someone is telling them, no, you're totally disabled, that kind of becomes a psychological thing, even even aside from their financial situation. You're, I, that's an important point, the, the psychological aspect of hearing that, right? Because... If someone says you're totally disabled, I can't release you to work, that does have an impact, you know, on someone's actual ability to work. They're hearing it from who they believe to be a trusted medical doctor or uh, just not necessarily a medical doctor, but a, a healthcare provider that's telling them this is what I believe you can or cannot do. Sure. Or their counsel explaining to them this is what sure. your doctor says. And, and right. what reason would they have to disbelieve that? Right. Right. It, be, it becomes a binary. Yeah. Can work or not work. Not it's, it's written as a percentage, zero to 100. But it, right. And then take it take it even a step further. If we redefine this total disability concept and make medical reports less important, then you'd have someone saying you are able to work. But then someone else, the board saying, but I'm going to pay you as if you can't work at all. Right. What kind of psychological aspect would come from that? It seems like it it just be levels on levels on levels. And this was a very, very uh, ambitious attempt at reshaping the law. I've actually spoken to a few claimants attorneys that were surprised it got this far. And it shocked me just because I think sometimes we get used to the idea of thinking that, you know, the claimants attorney on the other side is diametrically opposed to what we do as defense. But sometimes... That actually creates 
uh, you know, the reasonable understanding of what this bill really is. Like if there are some claimant attorneys that are just like, this is, this is ambitious. This is, this doesn't make sense. Then it really shines a light on, you know, what, uh, bills should or should not have passed, what should even be proposed. And if there's a way, honestly, as a tried and true defense attorney, that's, you know, more aggressive than most that if, this bill can be repurposed to ensure greater attachment to the labor market. I think that's a good thing because if they come back to the workforce, if anything incentivizes them to come back to the workforce, that is a good thing for New York State. It's a good thing for uh, our place uh, as stakeholders in this industry because we want them to come back to work. We want them to be part of the economic benefits that are bestowed upon us all. Right. And we want our clients, especially the employers, to be able to bring these people back. Right. To have to right. them to have a say in that, too. Right. right. It's a good point. How how do you think a claimant's attorney is taking this uh, this result? Right. Are they are. Do you feel that maybe your your adversaries in court felt like this could be a win for them? Or did they did they did they feel like, like that this was a possibility that this bill would be passed? I'm not sure about that. I don't know the extent to which there is like a labor, you know, union support for this bill. Like you said, I I think almost everyone found it to be surprising and almost in a way, right, that I I have a lot of respect for the claimants attorneys and the zealous advocacy that they do. And I don't want to say this would have made their job too easy, but it really would have simplified things to a certain level that certain hearings uh, lose, lose a sense of purpose. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think that this kind of gets us back to what we know and what is right. So uh, ultimately speaking, to, to kind of take away some, you know, win that you had a few months ago and basically say this would never have happened. That's too far. We're, 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 we're getting into you know territory that's too overbroad where it just talks about, hey, all the law that we know that has resulted in good strategies to win cases. We're just going to take that away from you with a few sentences to redefine temporary total disability. It's too much. It's too much. So if it goes back to the drawing board, maybe we'll be talking about it this time next year. Um, any final thoughts? Any final thoughts on, on temporary total disability uh, and, and this bill that was vetoed before we close up shop here, Steve? No, like we said, I think uh, we should take away from this optimistically, right? I know Greg had sent some stuff out to our clients to make sure that they contacted the governor to let them know how they felt about it. I think that was definitely heard, especially in, in, like we said, some of the logic of the veto here and uh, looking forward to a bright 2023. Oh, what a great way to end it. This is better than I, better than (laughs) I could have ended it. Uh, So for uh, Steve McClendon, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.